So we're recording now? Okay, great. All right, I'm going to lean the... <laughs> uh, we're in the second section of our series, The Gathering Storm, based on the books we were reading and the scriptures to compare them. Uh, we're in this second section where we're looking more at the content of Live Not By Lies. Um, and I said that the way we do that is by walking in the truth. Walking in the truth, then, is intentionally thinking, talking, and acting according to the Word of God as we're illuminated by the Spirit of God in, in community with each other and Him. Last week, I looked at the lies that are being uh, told and threaten us, uh, and I gave five of them. Secularism, the idea that there's a no-God zone, there's where God doesn't operate, we can just... Think of natural law as functioning. God's not really there. That's not a biblical concept. The idea of racism. Race actually developed as a modern term based on Darwinian kind of evolution that certain groups had not evolved as much as others. And that's where this notion of racism comes from. The Bible knows nothing of that. It knows about ethnic groups that divided at Babel linguistically and the Physical differences are really adaptations to that diaspora that took place. The third one is that gender and sexuality is unrelated to marriage and parenting. That was a package that God gave. He created us as male and female for the purpose of marriage and companionship and procreation and parenting. And that's really what those uh, being male and female is about. And that um, is really about being fruitful and multiplying as God gave the first commandment to Adam and Eve. The fourth one is that life is about security, success, and significance. Uh, and therefore, everything else has to drop away and we try to become significant and successful. There is nothing secure in this life. This life does not have security. And so the idea of security becomes uh, somewhat of a false dream that we chase. Now, I'm not saying that we should just live completely without any planning. Of course, we plan our life, but the Lord orders our steps, and we're, we should be humble in that, that we'll go and buy and sell in a given city if the Lord wills. And so um, the scriptures are clear there. And then the last one I talked about was that suffering is not normative and needs to be eradicated. We're living in a time where at least in our culture, we believe that all problems can be solved, all poverty can be eliminated, all disease can be gotten rid of. And while I think we should try to mitigate those as much as possible, they're not going to be eliminated. And the danger of thinking that that's the focus of life ignores that there is actually a biblical doctrine of suffering that we need to understand. So... We need to talk about the methods that we're going to use to resist those lies and to avoid conforming to the world and how we walk in truth and teach our children and our converts to do that. But we need to talk about something before that, and that is the cost of such a discipleship. There are several costs involved, but one that I want to talk about today is the suffering uh, cost one of the costs is suffering for righteousness' sake or for the name of Jesus. So let me address that. And we'll begin with Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 25. 
I take that back. It's 14. I don't know why I said that. It's 14. Luke 14, verse 25 to 35. In this um, gospel, Luke places these words of Jesus right after the parable of the guest, where those who were invited to the banquet didn't come in. And so he said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This idea that there is a calling to people who may not have been chosen, but 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 respond. Uh, and in the context then of that, we get this passage, beginning in verse 25. Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, those who observe it will ridicule him. Saying, this guy began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt, if it has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure power. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus in this passage makes it really clear that our confession of faith is not what I call layaway Christianity. I said the magic words, and now I go to heaven. It's really a commitment to deny yourself and follow the Lord. You cannot be saved and not be a disciple. Uh, there's this notion that discipleship is a second optional thing. Uh, but the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible talks about followers of Jesus or Christians as disciples. And Jesus says in the verse 25 to 27, If you don't hate your father and mother and wife and children and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Now he's not suggesting that we hate our relatives. The idea of hate here is the idea of Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The biblical concept of love is not this emotional attachment. It's a doing good for. Jacob I will do good for, Esau I will not do. If you do good for people, you are loving them. And if you don't do anything for them, you are hating them. That's the biblical concept. And what he's really saying is, I have to be the first priority. You love the Lord your God with all your mind and life and soul, right? And that is the priority. And so, to be a disciple of Jesus requires that we are willing even to know that we might be unable to do anything for our family members uh, in our devotion to Him. 
He's not suggesting that we do that. He's telling us that that may be a cost. Jesus says elsewhere, a person's enemies may be those of their own household. Okay. Now he goes on in the uh, next verse, 28 through 33, where he talks about counting the cost. And he gives examples of that, but he gives a summary of what he's talking about because most of us are not kings and we're not going to battle, right? And we're not builders and we're not building something. Those are two examples. So the issue of what he's talking about is verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now again, Jesus is not saying, go home this afternoon and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He didn't tell one person that because he knew his heart and that that guy was owned to buy his possessions more than he owned his possessions. We have in the book of Acts a statement of how the early believers saw this. They saw that none of them believed that what they had was exclusively theirs, but it was for the benefit of others. This is the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when John was asked, what does that mean? He said, if you have two coats, give one to another person. In other words, this idea of sharing and taking care of one another is part of uh, the being a disciple. Now, the cost of discipleship of losing your possessions may be more difficult than giving up your life. Because most of us are not likely to be called to martyrdom. But we may have to challenge ourselves as to whether we're going to go after the goods of this world or seek first the kingdom of God. Then in verses 34 and 35, he he completes this by talking about carrying our cross. Being open to the suffering of loss has to be part of our commitment. Without it, we're like salt that's not salty anymore. We're useless to the kingdom of God. So we have to count this cost and we have to prepare for it. And we have to do that before we get to the place where we're called upon in that framework. That's why I'm talking about this now. We're not on the cusp of great persecution. We are being seduced into assimilation. And when we don't succumb to that, persecution may follow In that context. And so we have to talk about suffering. There is a danger here. You know I talk about multiple denominations. In this particular case. The emphasis of some denominations over others. Misses a point. In other words you're focused on this. And you miss that. I'm trying to be strict. So I forget to be lenient. I'm trying to be lenient, so I forget to be strict. So don't see this as one is good and one is bad. But in this case, the Orthodox churches of Christianity, both Catholic and Orthodox, have a better understanding of a doctrine of suffering than do Evangelicals and Pentecostals. In fact, in some extremes of the Pentecostals, there should be no sickness at all. Jesus The healing is in the atonement, and so you'll never be sick. So there must be something wrong with you. That creates depression and problems. Now, it's not because they're wrong. It's because they're overemphasizing something that's true. God is a healer. He does answer prayer. He does do those things. Does He do it all the time? No. But He does do it. 
So the struggle is keeping the balance in this. And so when I talk about suffering, I don't want you to all sign up and say, I want to suffer for the Lord. We're not supposed to volunteer for it, but we may be faced with it. And that's what I want to talk about. So I'd like you to turn to a passage I mentioned last week. And um, I told you if you wanted to read ahead, you could read that. It's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now this chapter in the first nine verses, I'm not going to read them. It just says that there's going to be difficult times ahead. And I read those uh, before and you've read those. And we know that there are difficulties that will be faced in the latter days. As a result of that, in, cha- in verse 10 of chapter 3, um, Paul gives Timothy some advice. He says, now, you followed my teaching my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my perseverance, my persecutions, and the sufferings that such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And then he says, Indeed, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil men and imposters, those who claim to be believers but they're not, will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All claiming that they're speaking the word of the Lord. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. In this case, he learned them from Paul, and he learned them from his childhood. And that from a childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequately equipped For every good work. Now, good works won't save us, but the saved engage in good works. That's what Ephesians uh, says, that by grace you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has foreordained that we would walk in them. The idea is that the saved will walk in good works. Those who try to do good works to be saved will be deceived. Very important. So, we need to see that what Paul is talking about here is that he had suffered. And he had suffered persecutions. And he says, but the Lord delivered me or rescued me from all of those. It's an interesting word. I did a lot of kind of checking back into it. It's a rare word. It's not used a lot. Uh, it's translated for the most part rescued or um, or delivered. Uh, the idea of that is not avoidance being able to get around it, but going through. In fact, the word literally can mean to drag you through something. Now, I don't think the Lord drags us through things, but he carries us through them. He brings us through them. He never leaves us nor forsakes us so that while we can't handle it, He can handle us in it. 
And that's, I think, what Paul is talking about. So I want to talk about some different kinds of suffering. Mentioned them in the Q&A last week. Um, I want to look at them so that we kind of see the categories. Not all suffering has the same purpose, and not all suffering has the same cause, and not all suffering has the same benefit. Okay? So, first of all, there's suffering just because we're human. We're born into a condition in this life where there is pain and suffering. This is a result of the sin of Adam. It is the result of the ongoing sin of mankind in not walking in God's ways, but walking in their own ways. And as a result, the Bible is very clear in books like Ecclesiastes and others that life is filled with a lot of difficulty and suffering. And there will be a few good days and you should rejoice in those, but the dark days are going to be there. And you don't have to live very long on this earth to not realize that there's that kind of suffering. Now, in Western culture, we've mitigated against that as much as we could uh, without God. Uh, But that suffering is there. I want you to look at Romans 8, uh, verse 8 passage you're all very familiar with. One of those passages that sometimes gets um, misunderstood. Paul says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he's talking about the creation and the sufferings of the world, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the entire creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. That's the resurrection. The creation was subjected to futility, vanity. He's quoting Ecclesiastes here. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself, all of the creation, will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This suffering is a suffering that will ultimately be passed, just like the pain of childbirth, with the birth of the child or with the revelation of the children of God. He says, not only this, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our body. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for a body that doesn't have pain, a body that doesn't have suffering, a body that can't get sick. We are not wanting to be rid of this body. We're wanting this body to be redeemed as well. He will cause our spirit to be born again. Our mind is going to be transformed by the truth. And our bodies are going to be transformed by the resurrection. So he says that that's going to bring the glory of God uh, throughout uh, the entire creation. And he says, For in hope we have been saved... But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for it, we do for what we do not see, we persevere and wait patiently uh, wait for it. Now, 
every time I have a pain or I have an asthma attack, I am longing for the time when that won't happen, right? And so what tends to happen is as we get older, we are more aware of that suffering of this creation and more longing for the eternity and the new creation that God is going to give us. So this is a suffering that is common to all men, but there's a difference between the non-believer and the believer. They look at it and go, why is this going on? And we can go through it and say, this is temporary. This isn't eternal. And it will be replaced with a glory that will make this insignificant. As I said last week, that's a high bar for God to say, all of this suffering and all of this stuff that we've seen is not going to be worthy to be compared, weighed against the glory that will be revealed. That's what our hope is. That the world doesn't have. So we go through the pain. But we go through it with hope. My example of that. I haven't used it in a while. Do you know why people like roller coasters? Not everybody likes them. But the people who like roller coasters. Like them because they know they're going to get off. They ride them for a while. And then they. Oh, that was great. They get off. But if, if the roller coaster breaks. And just keeps going. Forever. Nobody enjoys that. Well, you and I know we're getting off this roller coaster into a great glory. And so we have a greater way of coping with it than the world. Okay, So that's one kind of suffering. Now, that suffering we should mitigate. We should care for the sick. We should feed the hungry. We should do those things. That's, as I said, the second commandment is that we are to help our neighbor. Um, now, the second kind of suffering is one that I don't recommend, and neither does the Bible. It is the suffering that comes from doing evil, from sinning. And I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 20. Peter says, What credit is there if when you sin... And are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. If you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this fights favor with God. So there's a difference here. If you're suffering by your own sin, what I call being dumb in a no-dumb zone, right? And we all do it. Then we shouldn't be griping about why am I suffering this, Okay? We do things that we shouldn't do, and we have that suffering. There's no benefit there. <coughs> but we are told that we should bear that with patience. In other words, we need to be aware that because we are sinners, we are going to engage from time to time in unintentional sin. We have to deal with that. That's not the same as intentional sin. And the Bible makes that kind of distinction. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 15 and 16, he's very clear about this. He says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. That in the Greek is somebody who drives slow in the fast lane of the freeway. Not really there, but feels like it to me. Okay. 
so this idea is that we're not supposed to be, let's sin that grace may abound. We're supposed to be trying to live righteous lives. So, very important that there is suffering for doing evil. The Bible tells us we're not supposed to do that kind of suffering. Okay? And if we do, keep your mouth shut, endure it, and stop it. Right? Now, there's a third type of suffering. This is the suffering for doing right. So go back to that 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and 23. We looked at verse 20, um, where he says that if you, if you sin and you are treated harshly, so what? But if you suffer for doing what's right, this finds favor, grace, with God. Now look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I want you to understand that when you suffer for doing right, and people persecute you or treat you inappropriate. You're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to take advantage of you doing the right thing. You don't need to threaten them, but I want you to know something. They're going to answer at the judgment. They're going to have to deal with what they did to one of God's children when we were living right and they were taking advantage of that. But we don't utter the threat... We just know that Father will take care of this. And therefore, we can endure it. Now, this is also mentioned in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Isn't that an odd verse? We sing Jesus paid it all. But, but Jesus is still being afflicted. He's still being persecuted. He's still being hated. But they can't get to him, so they get to his body. This is why when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus' people. No, no, we're his body. There is suffering of those who hate God and hate Christ. And as a result, hate us. And we become sharers in his sufferings so that we will become partakers of his glory as well. This is really important. There is a calling to come to Christ. And that calling includes a calling to suffer for doing what is right. And Paul says that that brings a fulfillment in what is lacking in the expression of that hatred towards Christ that is done by persecution of the church. 
There's a lot here I don't think we understand. But it's important to understand that we are not called to escape everything. We are sometimes called to be drugged through that stuff. Then finally, there is a suffering directly for Christ. And that's found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Pick it up at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. It's not hitting all of you. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Not a doctrine I was taught when I became a believer. I was taught that when I come to Jesus, everything bad in my life is going away. And it isn't the case. There's a lot that we suffer. In Matthew, Jesus addresses this. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. In the book of Acts, when the apostles were beaten, they praised God that they were worthy to suffer for His namesake. We don't think that way. We immediately see somebody suffering, and what do we think? You did something wrong. We should be living in such a way that people don't think that's what the reason is. That what the reason may be is something different. Hebrews chapter 10 says that not only does these things, the loss of our property, happen to us, but we share in their suffering when we take care of them. When we visit them in prison, when we care for them, they've lost stuff and we replace it. We are caring for those who are suffering in Christ's stead. So it appears that the sufferings of Christ continue even now, and we share in them as a body. Now, there's two other examples of this in the extreme that you're familiar with. So I'm just going to mention them. One is Job. We've all read Job. You read the first chapter and you go, you know, I mean, just like everything goes up. And when I read that and I realized this is about a discussion between God and Satan. This is not really about Job. He's just minding his own business, doing what he should do. And, and Satan says, you know, he won't, he, he'll curse you to your face if you let me at him. And so God starts letting him at him. Because he was righteous. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Don't mention me, God. I don't, right? And then Paul. Paul says, I was given so much revelation that in order to keep me humble... God allowed me to be afflicted and I had an angel of Satan that gave me trouble everywhere so that people would look at Paul's life and say, he's been thrown in prison, he got shipwrecked, he can't be an apostle. Now, I believe that these are special cases of people who are particularly Abrahamic 
Job and Paul-like. Which means I'm in no danger of this kind of suffering. Okay? And maybe you aren't either. But the reality is that there are some people who are suffering because there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes that we know nothing about. And, and unfortunately, Job wasn't told that's what was going on. Paul did because he griped so much. Lord, take it away, take it away, take it away. God said, no, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So what does Paul say? Then I'll rejoice in these sufferings. Because I know that they are the will and purpose of God for me. Not all suffering is that. But that is included in here as well. So, suffering is not some rare and occasional aspect of walking in truth. It is the accompaniment of the disciples who walk by faith in obedience to the Lord. So we're going to suffer as all humans suffer. And we can and should assist one another in alleviating that suffering uh, when we can. We may suffer as sinners. But we are warned against this and we must understand that there is only shame in this. That's what my rebellion was. And while God can even do good in that, there is no encouragement to sin that grace may abound. We will suffer for living right and for his namesake. And in this we must learn to rejoice and endure it because it brings a great reward. Now I don't believe we're to seek this, not to volunteer for martyrdom. But we must count the cost of its potential as we walk in the truth. Particularly as our culture is turning its sense of favor against Jews and Christians. We may see more and more of us harmed in terms of employment, harmed in terms of advancement, harmed in terms of uh, other kinds of things. So I don't think we're to seek it. And, you know, you, you don't want to say, hey, here I am, right? That kind of thing. Uh, but the reality is we need to be prepared for it. And our children need to understand what that is. That suffering for the Lord is an eternal benefit, not a temporal one. An eternal benefit. So, now that we've seen that suffering is part of this process, we'll look at the ways that we can resist and what the Lord has told us to do in dealing with the world that is moves from trying to seduce us into assimilation to push us into assimilation or persecute us because we won't assimilate. And we'll look at that next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.